And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Polling has become a pervasive uh, presence in our political life, sometimes uh, to a fault. Uh, But there are a few people who have lived through the uh, growth of the polling industry and politics uh, from the very beginning and who've played a major role and a positive role uh, in its application. One of those people is Peter Hart, who for half a century has been doing opinion research, some pioneering focus groups uh, in politics. Uh, He is uh, one of the uh, major players in the Wall Street Journal uh, NBC polls that have been uh, remarkably good uh, over the years. And Peter has an incredible insights into uh, into campaigns and into public figures. Uh, we sat down the other day to talk about this campaign and its unique characteristics. Peter, you're a sort of an iconic figure in American uh, opinion research and certainly in, in, in political in the political world, uh, I have this image of you uh, at birth um, uh, coming out and interviewing everybody in the delivery room about how they felt about the experience, and uh, because you're the master of, uh, of focus groups and so on. But but tell me how you tell me a little bit about how you uh, grew up and how you came to to be a pollster and be who you are today. Well, I grew up in Berkeley, California. My father was an English professor at uh, UC Berkeley. And um, it was my mother who I think was a major influence in terms of my career because she was always asking questions. And that was her way. She had this marvelous, infectious way of talking to people and getting a lot of information. And I think that was sort of the native start. And there was the other ability, which for all everybody in the polling profession and most people in politics, love of baseball, knew every statistic for every player, uh, loved it, understood it. So you had numbers and questions and uh, I went to Colby College in Waterville, Maine, came out. About as far from Berkeley as you could get. Uh, yes, it was. I was looking for my own identity. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> then uh, I graduated. I was so looking- back up for a second. So the Giants must have been just arriving in San Francisco. They must be newly in- installed in San Francisco when you were there. Indeed. It was 1958. I was a junior in high school, and uh, the Giants arrived. And uh, it only took... Uh, it only took 52 more years to get the Giants to win their first World Series. So yeah. it happened almost you're immediately. Talking to, you're talking to a Cubs fan, man, so I don't have any sympathy for you at all. It's been 108. Yeah, but I'm rooting for youth this year. Yes, thank you. Uh, but in any respect, uh, so I went so to So you Col- went to Colby. And you had some interesting classmates there, right? Wasn't Doris Kearns? Doris Kearns Goodwin was uh, my classmate. And as I've always said, there was only uh, room for one valedictorian and one person at the bottom. I allowed, <laughs> I allowed Doris to take the top. What and was I Doris was really- like back then? She was exactly like she is today, Uh, infectious personality, very interested in everything that goes around. And there's one marvelous quality about Doris. When Doris was talking to you, there was nobody else in the world. And it is that marvelous connection. She's on the board of my institute and just one of my favorite people in the world and also a rabid baseball fan. Oh, Great baseball fan, great Brooklyn Dodger fan. Yeah. But uh, she was a marvelous classmate and a very, very dear friend. And um, I was thrilled and delighted with all her success. Did you guys talk? Was there a lot of politics in your home when you were growing up? Uh, a lot of politics in our home. My mother was a Stevenson devotee in Illinois. Yes. And uh, she was as 
uh, involved as anybody in the Stevenson campaign, uh, and he carried Berkeley by a large margin. You'd be surprised That's to find that out. That's shocking to me, yes. Yeah, it really was. And uh, sort of as Berkeley goes, so, <laughs> so, so did the nation not go. Uh, yes, or yeah. so goes San Francisco. My favorite Stevenson story, and one you'll remember, is in 56 when he was doomed from the beginning against Eisenhower, and he right. was at a rally, and someone shouted every thinking Every thinking person in America is for you, Governor. And Stevenson said, yeah, but I need a majority. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He didn't he get a, it. Yeah. He had a marvelous wit and a marvelous way. And in our household, uh, there were always political people coming through. I remember that Eleanor Roosevelt uh, came to our house wow. at some stage for that's impressive. Uh, yeah, for uh, some event, uh, and it was it was a it was a literary and uh, political household. So we were very involved. In so the, when you went off to Colby, you were already inculcated with that gene. I definitely had that gene, and uh, indeed ran for a student body office and served and uh, and just loved politics. Politics. I mean, to my. Did you poll while you were running for student body? I should have, but I, uh, <laughs> I just did door to door. I heard that was a very effective way to go. Uh-huh. Uh, but then I got out of college and I needed something to do, and I got an introduction to Lou Harris. And I went oh. down for an interview, and at that stage, he had been John F. Kennedy's pollster, and he had just started the Harris Poll, uh, which was syndicated with the Washington Post and Newsweek, and he was doing the election night coverage for CBS, and uh, that was the first early projection returns. Yeah. So uh, he looked at me, interviewed me, and said, you're one of the brightest, most interesting, uh, dynamic people I've ever met, and I'd like to <laughs> offer you a job at $2 an hour. And so I started as a coder at $2 an hour. The first part isn't true. The second part is true. I gathered, yeah. Uh, so I learned it from the ground up. Uh-huh. And were you? did you have a facility for statistics, for math, for... Yeah, it, it was just, it was kind of a natural, I could look at numbers and make some sort of patterns out of them and understood them. Uh-huh. Uh, and it always told me that Mickey Mantle was going to be a good play- baseball player. I see. So so this, so playing with statistics around baseball was helpful. Absolutely. In, in terms all. of this. What, what, um, what, what was polling like then as compared to now, uh, just as a technical matter? Well, there are three things that are important. First of all, computers were in the nascent period so there was that was very very difficult and we all used slide rules we didn't have calculators or anything else uh but the most important thing is we did all of our interviews door to door and you can imagine the uh the the relationship that you created with your respondent when you're standing two feet away from them with a clipboard and you're doing an interview. It was very personal, it was very real, and you got a lot of information. And uh, it was a marvelous way to do it. Were there artifacts? I mean, were there there effects of the nature of the person who was doing the interviewing? In other words, did you pay attention to who you were sending into different areas? Did you, you know, did you want African-Americans to African-American communities and so on? Sure. I mean, we were racially sensitive. And by the way, I should mention your mother had her influence on your on your life. And for me, uh, the same kind of thing. So the conversations that you would have. Second thing that is so important to understand is speed. I mean, in those days. A poll that you put out usually took about three to four weeks to be be able to produce it from the time in which you had a questionnaire to the time in which you uh, delivered the results. And I remember in the 1964 election, and Lou had put me into the CBS election night coverage uh, by that stage, and all of a sudden... Uh, there was the scandal in the White House with Walter Jenkins and uh, the Lyndon Johnson. W- yeah, Walter Lyndon. Jenkins was was uh, arrested for some right uh, for sexual, morals. Yeah, 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 for a morals charge. Same time, uh, Khrushchev and Jenkins uh, was one of LBJ's closest personal aides. Exactly right, and uh, at the same time, uh, Khrushchev was kicked out in the Kremlin. And the third thing that happened is. China uh, tested an H-bomb. So you can imagine in the course, right in the middle of a 
presidential fall election, all of those things happened. And Lou said, we have to get out and do a poll right now. And we conducted the fastest poll that had ever been known to mankind. We sent out the interviews and had them all special delivery, not just regular mail. The interviewers rushed around in a day's time, and then they phoned us long distance at $3.50 for three minutes or whatever it Mm -hmm. was, and we copied down all the answers, and seven days later, we had the results. And this was uh, uh, a path-breaking Sure it was. I mean— And and was it—and were there—was it an accurate poll? Was it— yeah, well, it was a fascinating poll, and what it showed is that all of these things canceled out one another and nobody changed their vote, and if we had waited and gone the long route, we would have found out the same thing. Yeah, but today uh, you're talking about a whole different world. Totally different world. And what's so fascinating about today is that we've gone through the iteration where we went from door-to-door polling and everybody said, well, telephone polling's too unreliable, et cetera. But by the late 70s, everybody was on the telephone because uh, everybody, quote, had a telephone. And uh, you could reach so many more people, do it more quickly, and do it less expensively. And consequently, from the 80s through 2010, uh, everything was done by telephone with a few door-to-door surveys. But today, not every, today. Once again, people don't all have telephones, or at least they don't have wired telephones. So uh, there's this question as to uh, how accurate polling can be, given the fact that most people are on wireless now, and it's harder to, to track them down. Well, to be perfectly honest, we then went into this new period of time, which is obviously uh, the cell phone, and we've now gone online. And those are two different bridges off of which we've come. And the first thing uh, in terms of door A, in terms of telephone, well, essentially, there are now 40 plus percent of our interviews that are done for NBC and the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, we should point out you're the pollster for NBC and the Wall Street Journal. A, uh, a co- uh, With Bill McInturf. With Bill, Bill McInturf. A Republican public, Right, a Republican opinion poster, st- yeah. strategy. So, in any respect, so we uh, we now do over 40% of all of our interviews by cell with, uh, with people who only can be reached by self-telephone. And that's become very hard and very difficult. The challenge facing the telephone interviewing is response rates. Used to be a special thing when a pollster came to your door. Today, uh, when somebody phones you, you couldn't be bothered. Mm-hmm. So our rates are now into single digits. So you wonder, are you really repl- replicating the whole nation? And we seem to think that we are, and everything suggests. But the bigger challenge facing the industry is now a lot of people are doing online polling. And the challenge for online polling is there is no sample universe uh, because uh, unlike everybody having a telephone, essentially you're working off uh, various lists and various things and they haven't been – uh, totally vetted. In- so you don't know if you're actually talking to voters? and. Well, I think that's always a challenge, but I think the more important challenge in this is you don't know if you have a sample. You may have a yeah. representation right. of what the United States looks right. like, but it sort of feels like uh, when you do a blood test, you know that that blood test re- belongs to that one person. When you're doing uh, online telef- uh, online interviewing, you don't really know uh, what that test is full of. So it's got its own shortcomings. Have you taken a look at uh, of, uh, online polling versus uh, telephone polling so, uh, mixed in with cells for accuracy? Have you Have you done some testing of your own to see... Uh, about the efficacy of online polling now? Well, there is some efficacy, but there's also no plus or minus margin of error because a plus or minus margin of error depends upon drawing a sample. And since there's no sample, uh, it's produced, and we talk about uh, various things. And so far, it looks like there are some very good numbers out there, but we really don't know. I think there's a I mean, ways part, to go. Part of part of it is that, you know, uh, it, it seems to me that it could be a self 
kind of limiting uh, cohort because not everybody is going to be online and available uh, to respond to these. Uh, so just, it's a so you run into kind of a bias in the sample. Well, the, the bias in the sample uh, is who's willing to fill out these questionnaires, who cares about it, et cetera, and they're flooding their mailboxes. So there are all those vagaries. But mm-hmm. then you have to say, look, uh, when you go telephone, there are also 90% or more who are refusing to do your survey yeah. or not available. So uh, Challenges for the whole for the industry in the future. Oh, yeah. It's a big Let me challenge. ask you one more question about this. Yeah. I really want to get back to your story, but uh, there's been this suggestion that, you know, we, we, in, the, in the 80s, there was uh, this Bradley effect, right, where people in California uh, didn't want to say they weren't going to vote for uh, Tom Bradley, who was a, an African-American running for governor, and the polls overstated his support. Um, that was a question I used to get asked when Obama ran for president. Would there right. be a Bradley effect? There, there really wasn't. But uh, now there's this sense that is there a Trump effect? Does he underpoll because people uh, feel like there may be some stigma attached to voting for him, but they're going to vote for him anyway? I mean, is that a plausible theory? I don't think it's plausible. And when I say I don't think it's plausible, it obviously depends upon turnout. If there's an abnormal turnout among people who do not usually vote, then it would say. But everything we've seen in our polls suggests people have very strong attitudes and are not afraid to. Not afraid to, to express them, yeah. yeah. Very negative. Um so negative toward you. Well, we'll get into the race. Let's go back to your history. So you worked for Lou Harris. Uh, and uh, how did you get into uh, candidate polling uh, on your own? Well, I, I'll do a quick hopscotch. And that is I worked for Lou basically with a year out to serve in the Army. But from 1964 to the beginning of 1968, the Tet Offensive happened, and I said, I cannot sit on the sidelines in 1968. I went to work for a man named John J. Gilligan, who was running for the United States Senate in Ohio against a five-term governor uh, and two-term senator, uh, Frank Lauschi. And we won a tremendous upset in the primary, so he was the Democrat. Gilligan was an anti-war candidate. He was an anti-war candidate uh, and uh, won uh, the So you worked on his staff? Yes, I did. I was in charge of uh, sort of overseeing the organization, so I saw it on the ground. I learned a lot about it. I also did a couple of polls that were uh, volunteer polls, but proved to be very helpful and uh, insightful. And then uh, he lost in the fall. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, eventually ran for governor in 1970 and won. Uh, but uh, so that got me into the political field. And then after uh, being a young person, I decided to take off and tour around Europe. And uh, then I decided to come back. And when I came back, I applied for a job at the Democratic National Committee. Uh, and my good friend Mark Shields, who I'd met on the Gilligan campaign, was at the National Committee, and uh, Fred Harris, who was the chairman, hired me, and I learned uh, a lot about national politics, and I was overseeing a lot of Great character, Fred Harris. Oh, one of the great characters. Uh, I remember when he ran for president in 1976, senator from Oklahoma, and uh when he lost, he, he was always out there talking about, I'm, I'm, I'm here to fight for the little guy. And when he lost, they asked him what happened. He said, those little guys were so little, they couldn't even reach the voting levers. The voting levers, yes. Yeah, exactly. Great story. Fred was marvelous, uh, marvelous uh uh, chairman and a great uh, friend. But in any respect, when I was there, uh, Oliver Quayle, who was the major pollster of that time, having left Lou Harris and started his own firm and was Lyndon Johnson's pollsters in 1964, uh, asked me to come and work for him as sort of heir apparent to take over the firm. Uh, I spent a year there. I saw it was not the firm that would be the firm of the future. So I went back to Lou for a short period and then opened my own firm in 1971. I was still in my 20s. And talk about some of the races, the early you you worked you you've worked for like uh, an extraordinary number of 
senators, governors, you've worked in presidential races. What are the ones that were most impactful uh, for you, the ones that you, your favorite clients, the most impactful races themselves? Okay. I mean, one of the ones that I'm particularly proud of is working for Ella Grasso, uh, who was running for governor, governor of Connecticut. And she went on to become the first governor in the United States, woman, a female governor elected on her own right. And how do you get it bias? against having a woman governor. And we had a very complicated questionnaire which found out something that was counterintuitive. The people who were the most biased against her were women over the age of 50, which was her peer group. And you'd say, well, what's going on here? And what we really found out is they weren't biased against her, but they were telling telling you about their lives. And so their fear was that a woman would be overrun by a male officials wouldn't be able to handle the job. And what we did, and this is a, a spot with David Sawyer, we put a group of... Great, ma- great uh, media consultants of that time. Exactly. And we put a group of men around the table, and each of them asking her, uh, and she was asking them, various questions. What are we going to do about housing? That's not enough. I want to do this. How about crime? No. We're going to go a totally different way. It was just aimed at saying to women, she isn't you. Mm-hmm. And she ended up winning and uh, won re-election. That was a great race. In South Carolina in 1974, I worked for a man named Charles Pug Ravenel, who was an unknown uh, candidate and ended up uh, running and winning the Democratic nomination, thrown off the ballot because he didn't meet the residency requirement. But it changed politics in South Carolina, and not surprisingly, we went on and we worked for Dick Riley, person you know well, yes. uh, who was governor for two terms and one of the truly great governors, and William Winter, governor in Mississippi. All of these people were pathbreakers, uh, and John Glenn in 1974 worked for him. Uh, he had lost previously uh, in his Senate race, and he went on to serve for uh, 25 years with great distinction. So I got to work on a lot of the early, most difficult races where you started to change things. And you were a lot coming- of those were the, the, the people were the kind of in the vanguard of a new South. Yeah, definitely the vanguard of a new South, but it was also your new post Watergate era. And so it was the ability to understand sort of how people had gotten disaffected from government and what was going to uh, come back and obviously affect us some 25 years later. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I think we're still grappling with some of those, those things today. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Peter Haar. Who were the sort of the most, uh, the, the sort of towering figures that impacted on you the most personally, people who you worked with who impressed you as uh as not not simply as a pollster, but as someone who cares deeply about these kind about political issues about the country. Well, I had the great honor of working for uh, Vice President and Senator Hubert Humphrey. Uh, he had such a tremendous reach in terms of of what he would understand. If I presented him with an answer from a poll, instead of having uh, a reach of six feet or eight feet, he could look at 25 feet and see things that other people couldn't see. And his humanity, his his warmth uh, was just amazing. You know, when I was a young reporter in 1977, uh, he passed away. Um, I remember I called in sick. It was on a Friday night. And uh, they said, oh, it's too bad we wanted to send you up to Minnesota because it looks like Hubert Humphrey's going to pass away. I said, I'll go. And I went, and I, I remember I stayed up all weekend uh, covering that story up there. But what was striking was everyone I spoke with in the state of Minnesota felt like they had a personal relationship with, oh, I know, I knew old Hubert. You know, every time I ran into him, he'd ask me about my family, and he'd know all the details of my life. And so on. So when you say he had a broader understanding when you gave him numbers, uh, you know, my sense is it's probably because he had a great reach into his own community, that he he was in constant conversation with people. 
But that's exactly who he was. I mean, that he represented a different era, came from a different way, and he was a different part of the Democratic Party and such an important part. And uh, I met him in 1959. I was still in high school. And he said to me, uh, young man, what's your future? And I said to him, well, Mr. Humphrey, I'm kind of a question mark. He turned to me you look like an exclamation point, you know, which was just his marvelous way of relating. And um, so he was he was a great candidate and great person to work for. I I'm worked glad for, I didn't say you were a semicolon. It could have sent you in a whole different direction. Exactly. Uh, and uh, then uh, Senator Edward Kennedy was another uh, one of my clients. I worked for him in the 1980 presidential election, stayed close to him throughout <coughs> the rest of his career. Talk a little bit about that. Ted Kennedy challenged a sitting president, Jimmy Carter, an unusual thing to do. What were you looking at at the beginning of that race that made you believe that he could win that? And how how did it unfold? Well, it it tells you so much about our business, David. And that is, uh, they approached me in September of 1979. And instead of having me go out and do a poll exactly at the beginning of this, they sort of waited until November. And by that stage, between September and November, because of uh, the Shah and the hostages and all of the things that happened, uh, you know, Carter became a different candidate, but also uh, Senator Kennedy because of his interview with Roger Mudd and sort yeah, of. We should point out for those who don't, who, who aren't everybody? of a certain age, <laughs> that uh, <clears throat> Ted Kennedy did an interview with Roger Mudd, who was a major figure at CBS at that time, an anchor, and uh, couldn't answer the question cleanly as to why he was running for president, and that haunted him throughout that campaign. Well, and uh, for such an amazing orator, he came out as somebody who really did not have a sense of why he was running and what it was about. And Did you have a lot of contact with him? Then? I had some contact, not a lot, uh, because it was, it was sort of a helter-skelter on-the-run uh-huh. campaign. It got put together quickly, They're, um, much like Hillary Clinton. Uh, Ted Kennedy had such a breadth of friends and close alliances. Which is, going can be back a blessing to, and a curse. That's exactly, yeah, going back to John Kennedy's uh, people and obviously Robert Kennedy's people. Uh, but uh, that race uh, was a very challenging race. And what it told you is early polling there would have given him a direction and, a, and an understanding. Instead, we started to measure all the backwash and couldn't really get on top of it. I'll tell you, you know, one. Let me, let me, yeah. Go ahead. Go tell. I'll tell you one little side story. This is a pollster's dilemma. Two two days before the Iowa caucus, which Kennedy would go on and lose two to one, we were all out at uh, at his house, uh, major people, and uh, Senator Kennedy said to us at the end, "Hey, why don't we all just?" Put in a number of what you think I'm going to get the percentage uh, in Iowa. In Iowa, two days <clears throat> from now, and uh, and I'm the pollster. I know what's going to happen in Iowa. Do you put down the accurate number, and we had to sign it, that would show you you were on the mark, or do you show a sense of faith and inspiration? That would make your candidate All right, Peter Hart, this good. is a test of your, your character. What did you do? I put down the honest number. Uh, and uh, and that's what I did always with candidates. Tell them the truth. How is that received? Ted Kennedy is a pretty big person. Uh-huh. And uh, and he's a remark- he was a remarkable person. And I was talking about the breadth of, of uh, Hubert Humphrey. What was fascinating about uh, Edward Kennedy is he could go down deep on numbers, and I always enjoyed that because he would test you, not necessarily to tell you the top line, but tell me what it really means and what's going on in the guts of people. So, so at some point, you had to tell him that this thing isn't going to happen. Well, we I we knew pretty early on that it was going be a long, long road, and it wasn't until New York in April that we started to turn things around, and it was an example of where you had a fractious uh, convention, and uh, obviously Carter lost that year. 
you look, and the Republicans had a fractious convention this year. It was an interesting year because uh, Carter secured the nomination but lost uh, a series of primaries at the end. And uh, there was a real sense going into that convention that he was perhaps doomed uh, but cer- and or certainly damaged, and there was a, a move at the convention to 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 open up the convention. Do you think Kennedy would have won that race? Could anybody have won that race no. in 1980 against Ronald Reagan? No, I don't believe that uh, Democrats. The American public had decided in 1980 that they did not want to reelect Jimmy Carter. What they did not know is could they trust or would they accept. Ronald Reagan, and it wasn't until the final debate that they made and that And the choice. only debate. They and only the had only one debate, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. That's correct. And I think it's much like the race this year. I was going to ask you about that. But in reverse, which is interesting, the American public knows they do not want Donald Trump as president. I mean, we've gone from beginning to end measuring Donald Trump. His numbers have never gotten positive. They've never suddenly said he's competent, he knows what he's doing, he's got the right temperament, he's honest, all of the things that people want and expect from a president. And they've never changed. So they know they don't want to elect him. They're not certain about Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton's been a question mark throughout. And instead, and of, has her own challenges on some of those measures, honest and trustworthy being the most uh, prominent of them. Uh, uh, integrity is one element. Likeability is the other element. And for Hillary Clinton, what the voters just want to know is, I can live with her the next four yes, years. Yes. They know that she is competent. Yes. They know she has the right temperament. Yeah. It is just... Likeability. But it's interesting, uh, and as we sit here, we're a few weeks away from the first debate. Uh, it's in certain ways for her, the the fluency in policy is easy. It's almost a it's almost a shield for her. The hard part is uh, projecting those other qualities that you speak of, particularly connecting with people on a on a on an authentic basis. Um, how, how how does she do that? Well, the answer, it tears my guts out. Because if you look at her whole life, it is the ability to connect with people. I have no doubt that you've got 10 or 15 stories of your dealing with Hillary Clinton and anything that dealt with your family or anything that dealt with something that was important. She was there. And she has been, and her relationships are so deep and so personal, and yet when she gets out in public, it is this sense that there is a glass curtain that yeah. voters can't get through. And There's like a political t- t- time delay. It's as if she's passing her words through some sort of political computer that someone like Peter Hart developed, and she's she's trying to find the most perfectly calibrated political words that will won't get her in trouble and will reflect the numbers. That's the feeling you get. Well, certainly for me, uh, I look at events that are personal, like when she hugged the little girl who was being bullied. I mean, that just says so much more than a four-point program on bullying or whatever it may be. And it is the ability to get to that human side. That's all voters are looking for. So you look... in, But she seems very... um, reluctant to be uh, demonstrative in that way, to be, to be uh, revealing of herself. I think that's uh, that has come from all of the problems that she has dealt with over the last 30 years with the press and uh, sort of being torn apart in one way or another. The irony is the American public just needs to know we can live with her. Uh, and that's what they're trying to answer. You... Uh you know, it's interesting. I, I want to talk a little bit more about this. I've had the opposite view of this debate in that, uh, thinking to the 1980 example, Ronald Reagan was viewed as extreme by many voters, uh, and he was a supremely calming presence in that debate against Jimmy Carter. And he the race broke open because he answered the question as to whether they could trust him to be responsible as president. Uh and I, I, I've been thinking about these debates as an opportunity for Donald Trump if he could find somehow the capacity to seem 
uh, better informed than he has, if he could show some temperament and thoughtfulness, that that he could activate uh, some vote. I think it's a, a, a reach for him. Uh, but what you're saying is the real the real test for Hillary Clinton to slam the door is to show this quality that she has sometimes has trouble showing. And I have experienced the same, uh, you know, on a personal level. I've I've she's helped uh, my. Uh, wife's uh, epilepsy foundation in and not just in su- uh, in su- uh, sort of passing ways but in real substantial advancing research in epilepsy uh, so I, I've seen it and I've seen her empathy and I've seen her kindness I just don't see it projected uh, on television hey my point is if you were the campaign manager would you be doing things differently yeah well, and that's that's the thing. I mean, They've had one campaign from beginning to the end. If you could say, you know, uh, something to the campaign team, what are the two things that you would tell them that they need to do over the last 50 Well, first days? of all, let me just say, I think that in, in some ways they've done a, a, a remarkable job because uh, given the fact that she has these tendencies, uh, the, the, uh, you know, they've they've had to work with those. And, and the organizational advantages they've built help them power through some of these problems. So I you know I know a lot of those people and I, I don't want to be uh, uh, critical of them. My view of, of, of campaigns is that you should put your candidate just as in sports, you understand what your candidate's strengths and weaknesses are and put them in a position to maximize their strengths and minimize their weaknesses. And um, so you know you, you look for opportunities like the one where the little girl, uh, she had that interaction with a little girl where she can show her humanity. I would keep her. I would keep the big stadium speeches at a minimum, uh, which tends to be her worst uh, venue. I mean, it's it's interesting because when she speaks, and it doesn't seem like she's speaking through that filter, she can be very compelling. You look at uh, election night in California, where she clearly won the nomination. You could see a joy and an ecstasy in her. The other day, the other time we saw it so well was the moment that she came out with Barack Obama after the president had given his speech at the Democratic Convention. You could see a just a joy and a relaxation and a true relationship between the two. Yeah, but these these were moments, Peter, of personal triumph, and I think the thing that uh, she has to overcome is the sense that she's an ambitious politician. She needs to explain that her ambitions uh, are larger than her own success, which I, I you know, I believe is is probably true. Uh, but uh, you know, I'm telling you, and you have conducted these really probing focus groups for the Annenberg Institute. Uh, over the course of this year. And I wanted to ask you, uh, what are you hearing about both of these candidates uh, from voters? And, and then I want to talk a little bit about the Trump phenomenon and, w- and why he's been so successful to this point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the voters have been magnificent throughout all of this, and I've really been fascinated. And this is, as you said, done for the Annenberg Center for Public Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Before, before let me interrupt yeah. you, and I get, I get some reverse fan mail telling me that I shouldn't interrupt people as much as I do. But I'm here, I want to have this conversation. Just explain a little bit about what focus groups are, because you, among pollsters, are really at the top of the list of people who use qualitative research. Focus groups, you mentioned my mother earlier. She was one of the pioneers in Truly. focus groups. Uh, you use focus groups uh, more and and put more weight on them than a lot of pollsters who tend to be more quantitative do. Talk about that and then talk about what you you saw this year. Okay. Uh, Well, focus groups to me are a chance to get down below. Uh, What numbers do is they give you a statistical sense of where uh, the public's at. Focus groups are qualitative. They are not a cross-section. They can't be looked at numerically in any respect. But what I'm trying to get to is not what's in their head, but what's down in their gut. Because I think if you understand what's in their gut, you'll understand more about how they're going to vote and what they're going to do. So to me, 
it's not an intellectual quest as much as it is a human quest. And I ask questions that are unusual, uh, and people say, well, why would you ask this? I, I asked several years ago if, uh, if blank were the sixth person in line uh, for a plane that they absolutely had to be on, what would they do? And so when I said about Bill Clinton, they said, oh, well, he would woo his, uh, the flight attendant and he would get his way on. Uh, and they talk about other people as getting somebody to kneel and pray and they would walk around. <laughs> and they talk about, uh, they would talk about a, uh, a Michael Dukakis as somebody who would wait patiently in line. So what you're trying to do is to understand where they're at or what they would be like as a next-door neighbor or uh, if you were to see them, if you were in a forest loss. Each of these, these things are aimed at sort of understanding the perceptions and where people come from. And uh, So what are the perceptions of these two candidates? And the, the folks you're talking to are – but but you choose these focus groups. It's a it's a, a room of people that are chosen from a sample. So they're not going to be. You're probably not talking to ardent Trump voters or ardent Clinton voters, but swing voters who could go either way. Yeah, uh, it's true. Uh, all we have are a dozen people around the table, and we don't suggest that they're a cross section of anything. But uh, what we get from these people. But they are people who are not. Just, in, in, in in one camp or another. Uh, in many cases, but in some cases, we actually have people that are in camps. Mm-hmm. But uh, what we're learning about Donald Trump, uh, and I ask people if he were a relative in your family, who would he be? Well, he turns out not to be anybody's brother or really an uncle or a father. He turns out to be sort of the crazy uncle or the distant father-in-law a somebody who you don't respect, you don't like, and you don't know. Hillary Clinton turns out to be an aunt, a one of two uh, kinds, either the stern, disapproving uh, one or the one that you look up to and admire. So people give us a sense in terms of Donald Trump. Everything, every projective question that we ask, uh, Donald Trump turns out as somebody that people want to avoid and stay away from. I really call him, uh, as much as anything, sort of, uh, he's the flame and the moth. And so there's a sense that people are so attracted to him. Why are they attracted to him? uh, Because it's like Daytona 500. People say they're there for the race. They aren't. They're there for the crash. And some uh, race fans will tell me I'm absolutely dead wrong. But in reality, it is that people want to see this crash. And uh, and uh, he is the straw, a straw that stirs the drink. And if you took him off, uh, if you took him off television for one week and said, we're going to have radio free Trump. The audience ratings would just drop to nothing. He would be the first to, to note that. Oh, you bet he would be. So his is all based upon uh, either this sense that I don't know what he'll do. I don't really care uh, if you're a supporter. Uh, but he represents the things that I'm railing against. America is going through an exceptionally hard time at this stage of the game. And it has to do with immigration. It has to do with race, all the basic issues. And obviously the economy. Well, and the other side is the economy. And these two forces are clashing against one another. One is the sense, how do I get ahead? And the other force is, how do I hold my position or how do I uh, plan my future? So those two things together, and it's that element that allows a Donald Trump to, one, win the nomination to exist at this stage of the game. And uh, were he a different candidate or were he to have 30 days of what I call rational dialogue with the American public, then Maybe maybe he would win the presidency, but it's hard to me uh, for me to see 30 days, and I don't think uh, the debate will just be the defining moment. Uh, I think it will be maybe a situation where we will see 
Donald Trump doesn't care and understand enough about American policy or that we see him as too uh, irrational, too outside the mainstream. But for Hillary Clinton, the same challenges. She has to be able to not only demonstrate her knowledge of the issues, but to show her character. And we always think her character relates to integrity. I think the thing that they've left out is the fights that she takes on. To me, if I had one thing to have told the campaign, is the moment that EpiPen happened and the outrage of their charges, she should have been at the headquarters and saying, this is what we're fighting against. These are the people who are hurting our children, who are taking things away. At that stage, the American public can say, this is a person that I really respect. This is a person who is going to fight my fights. Right now, they're twisted. They're concerned. Is she Wall Street's candidate? Is she getting all this money from everybody? Is it a set government? And instead of seeing the fights which they told at the convention well, the fights that she's taken on and what she believes, they need to see that side of her character because without it, it becomes... About uh, her and not e- them. Well, emails and yeah. Benghazi and right. all of those things. Well, we're going to take another short break and we'll be right back with Peter Hart. There's another element of the uh, of this race uh, from a sort of qualitative standpoint, and that is this issue of authenticity. Uh, Whatever people think about Donald Trump, he clearly speaks his mind uh, without any filter at all. That's both a strength and a weakness. Uh, This notion of authenticity is one that hounds uh, Hillary Clinton. She obviously has the problems with the emails and this question of trust and whether she's... But there's also the thing I mentioned earlier, the filter, Um, how how big a barrier is that for her? I think it's a huge barrier. Uh, it's a barrier in two different ways. Obviously, in terms of getting elected, what this is really about is the ability that people want to see uh, who she is and what she's going to be like. And all of the uh, integrity questions creates the doubt and uncertainty. And without some sense of her character and, and what she care yeah. and motivation yeah. is a great word. Yeah. What are her motivations? And I think if I asked that question in a focus group, I would get a very negative answer. And she can talk about all the programs she has, but what she really needs to talk about are the fights that she wants to take on. And if there was one thing that Bernie Sanders did in his campaign, you knew what he wanted to do and you knew the fights that he was going to take on. With Hillary Clinton, you know the complexity in which she looks at issues and understands uh, what government is all about. But you don't understand what is the motivating factor for her. This I believe. And I think if people had an idea of what she really believes they'd have a much easier time voting for her. The, uh, on this issue of authenticity, I've, I've sort of come to believe that authenticity is a leading indicator. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons why George W. Bush beat Al Gore and in 2004 beat John Kerry in a race that uh, Kerry probably should have won. Uh, I think it's the reason Barack Obama has been successful because people sense that he knows who he is and he's, he's, he's in touch with who he is and and he's direct about it. Um, but there could be something that is, uh, you could have too much authenticity. <laughs> I mean, Trump is authentic, but he may be authentically scary to people because of some of the things that he says, such as his bromance with Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I mean, they, everything about uh, Donald Trump and the American public finds both fascinating, but Uh, ultimately way too scary. I mean, and we focus on foreign policy, but in so many ways, it is his ability to get along with people. He has only one uh, way of dealing with people, and that's threats. 
And uh, if if he hasn't been nice to them or, quote, they're not nice to him, then the threats come out over, yeah. and has no sense of what the political process is about. Uh, and people have analyzed this and done a great job. But what I have to ask myself is with all the advertising and everything that's been written in this campaign, if he's still within a handful of points of Hillary Clinton – uh, what is it that we have to tell the American public about Donald Trump that they don't already know and understand? And so my theory has always been that against Bernie Sanders and against Donald Trump, it's all about Hillary. We all all want to just defeat Trump. I think it is about electing Hillary Clinton. And I think, if I can make one more point, yeah. the second thing that relates here is governance. And the one thing that we know is that out of, uh, out of um, 2008, we knew where Barack Obama was headed. We didn't necessarily know all the tent poles, but we had a very good sense of how it was being uh, how it was being directed and what it meant for government. And by the way, I think he's had the best seventh and eighth year of any president in my lifetime. Yeah, I mean it's not even close. Well, he said uh, he was a fourth quarter player. So. Well, he certainly has played exceptionally well in the fourth. How quarter. much does that matter, by the way? The fact that he his approval rating now has edged into the fifties. Uh, how much of a, a, a help is that to Hillary Clinton? Does it matter? Huge, huge advantage. And the reason it is is the public essentially <coughs> – excuse me. You, you want to hear some water? Yeah, I will. I'll take we it. Can, <coughs> my man Zane here can fix yeah. everything. So we're in just so – Yeah, right. I see it, yeah. 50 and it's 10.50. Okay. Uh, so you answer the question. I'm sure we're cut, yeah. cut, cut. Yeah, yeah, don't worry it. about okay, it. Okay, good. Uh, how much difference, right? It makes a huge difference because when a president is over 50%, we know that there is a great chance that that same party will get uh, will win. We know that even in history. a third term election, yeah, which historically in, goes against that, uh, the major the party in the way. That's correct. Secondly, I think that what's happened is people see the economic revival in America. There may be hard times and it may be hard to see how the future plays out, but people recognize that this has been from a historic low to a period where you see that in your research we see it in our research mm -hmm. the nbc wall street journal poll shows that the american public say he deserves credit for bringing the economy back and so when trump makes Hillary. him the fulcrum of his attack is he making a mistake well he's playing to the group that he needs to play to which is the republicans and so what he's trying to do as much as anything is reach the republican base those people who have said I just can't see myself voting for him. But they all agree, I don't like Hillary Clinton, and I never liked Barack Obama. Remember, his ratings with Republicans are still down in the teens right. or low 20s. So that's what Trump's doing, playing to the base. But uh, the, the, the problem he's had is with these college-educated white voters, where he's trailing a, a group that Mitt Romney won by 14 points. Can he, you know... I notice in, in most of these polls, the race has tightened up since the convention. The convention bounce is gone. Right. Tighter race. Uh, but a lot of it has to do with Hillary coming down and not Trump going up. Uh, is, there a, uh, is there a cap on Trump? Is there a place beyond which he just can't get because he's alienated minority voters and he's got this problem with a traditionally Republican-based college-educated whites? Well, there are many problems, as you say, the minorities, then you look at women and you look at millennials. All those are disqualifying for winning the presidency. But against it, you've got a third party candidate and a fourth party candidate. And you have to watch that very carefully. And if that vote stays up in the 15 percent level, then does he have enough room to be able to beat Hillary Clinton? Yes, and he what, does. What, and what, 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 what do you rate the percentage likelihood of a, of a Trump victory? Oh, I, I'd have to say seven to one odds. I wouldn't take anything 
uh, less than that if you wanted to bet. Uh, but having said that, uh, it, the race is ahead of us, not behind us. I mean, uh, essentially, we don't know what events are going to happen for a country that's gone through everything from San Bernardino to uh, to Mississippi to uh, Minnesota, et cetera. We have no idea what's – and that doesn't count international uh, events. And then beyond all of that, uh, what are the political events? So uh, seven to one odds against them, but at the same time, I still think the race is ahead Sometimes of us. seven to one odds come in. Yeah, Seven to one underdogs come in. And and my point being, watch the third and fourth party, because if they continue to pull up in the high, uh, in in the mid-teens, that's going to mean— In that, your experience, is that likely to happen? I didn't think it was going to happen, but I want to see a couple more polls before I feel certain. Right now— You do have two candidates who are quite unpopular, and that is unprecedented. We've never had a situation where you have two— major party nominees who are underwater in terms of their favorability. It's never been close to that. I mean, uh, when a candidate had 40 to 45 percent unfavorability, we considered them in terrible shape. But to be 55 to 60 is unparalleled. So that gives an opening to these third-party candidates. Well, and more importantly, it gives an opening to Donald Trump because I don't see how he gets over 50 percent. But can he get over 40 percent, 42 percent? Possible. Let me before I let you go, I want to ask you a question that you'd ask your focus group of uh, I want you to think about all the people you've ever worked with, all your clients, uh, and if you were marooned on an island, uh, which of those clients would you like to be marooned with? Uh, it's a great question. Um, uh, obviously, in some respects, I'd love to be uh, marooned with Bill Clinton because. He'd be a great conversationalist. He'd be marvelous. He catches all areas. He's a, he is a fascinating individual. Uh, but you know, if I were picking uh, my uh, my pastor or my rabbi, uh, I would tell you William Winter, uh, William former Winter, governor of Mississippi, former governor of Mississippi, one of the truly fine person uh, people, and really represented. Uh, how you change a state and the growth and change. Uh, it's but, funny if you ask Bill Clinton, he'd probably cite Winter as one of his great influences as a, a fellow progressive Southern governor trying to change the uh, ethos of uh, of the South. Yeah, no, uh, and I would put in there Dick Riley, and I put in there Jim Hunt, all all Southerners, all South Carolina, Southerners. North Carolina, <clears throat> and that's the reason that the South changed over the years. Uh, but uh, but I've had so many uh, clients that I, I've just been very very fortunate, and I can't uh, exit without saying that look. Uh, Al Hunt, who gave me the chance to work on the NBC great, Wall Street Journal. Poll. Great uh, long-time uh, uh, Washington journalist, yes. And uh, forever grateful because it changed my life and it uh, it gave me the opportunity uh, to come here and to, to talk about all the issues of the day, which uh, has been just fabulous. Well, and, you know, you remind me that i got to get Hunt over to uh, do one of these discussions. He's a... He's such an interesting guy. Without a doubt. But I, let me uh, also throw a bouquet your way. Because, I mean, in public life— I was going to say, let's cut it off here, but now <laughs> I'm going to let you continue. No, I, what I would tell you is that as a friend, but as somebody that views you uh, from afar, two things. One, the sense of depth and feeling of issues that make a difference and how society moves— you look and the country is so good and you get to the small towns and you get everywhere and you start to understand the future. You represent sort of uh, where do you go and how do you put things together. And now that you've moved into the public affairs area, what I like so much when you're on television is you give me the truth, but at the same time, uh, you you never go in in a negative way towards somebody in, with invective. I wish I could learn that from well, you. But listen, I, I I appreciate people who are in the public 
space. I, I think I recognize that there are we have big differences in this country, but I don't start from the assumption that somehow I love this country more than you do or someone else does. And I think I'd like to see that restored. But I appreciate the kind words, and I appreciate you. I, you know I call you Yoda uh, <laughs> because you're, you've got all this accumulated wisdom, and I appreciate being able to tap that wisdom generally and today. So, Peter Hart, thanks for being with us. Let me just say one thing about Yoda. Uh, because of you, uh, my grandson, age one, calls me Yoda. Excellent. Good. Glad to <laughs> Thank contribute. You. Thank you, David. Thanks, Peter. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.